It's the 7th of October in the year of our salvation, 2007. This is the 27th Sunday of the year and the Feast of the Holy Rosary in the older, traditional Roman calendar. And you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Today we welcome as our guest, St. Pope Gregory I, Gregory the Great. He'll talk to us today about when pastors should speak and when they should shut their mouths. And we're also going to hear about who the perfect priest is. And then we'll get some of your voicemail feedback. So let's get right to work now. We welcome as our guest today, St. Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604. We haven't heard from him uh, very often, I think maybe once before in this po- in these podcasts. Um, he was a great pope in very difficult times. He was from an ancient, uh, noble family. Uh, his family was Christian. And he was alive when Rome was in terrible decline. All Everything in Rome was breaking down and there was a huge vacuum of power and people turned to him. They basically turned to Gregory. And uh, like so many great men who were pulled into service because of the needs of the time, uh, Gregory struggled with the tension between the way he wanted to live and the way he had to serve. And so for a man like Gregory, who was so very much drawn to the monastic life and the life of study and contemplation of scripture, the contemplative life, uh, he had to struggle in the tension between this desire, also with fulfilling his heavy pastoral duties as bishop of Rome, and also the virtual civil ruler of Rome, uh, Gregory had to do things like appoint governors of provinces and help organize material supplies for wars and uh, choose uh, ambassadors and receive diplomatic missions and make sure that the city ran well and people had enough to eat and things were going all right. So he had terrible burdens on his shoulders, both secular and also spiritual. And so really there isn't any surprise that Gregory would uh, both assert the primacy of the Bishop of Rome at the same time as describe his role as the Servus Servorum Dei, the servant of the servants of God, uh, which is, of course, uh, still, even to today, one of the titles of the Bishop of Rome, uh, of the Pope. Now, the piece we're going to hear today Uh, taken from the second reading in the Office of Readings for this Sunday, the 27th Sunday of Ordinary Time, is from the Liber Regulae Pastoralis, uh, also called the Cura Pastoralis, or the Rule of Pastoral Care, the Pastoral Rule. It was a highly idealistic book written by Gregory the Great for an exarch, a, a bishop, of Ravenna named John. It's all about how really to be a ruler or a bishop. The the word used very often is a rector. A rector can be any kind of ruler, either civil or also spiritual. And of course he uses in this work also also pastor, a shepherd. But uh, this really can apply very much to civil rulers as well, though it's really intended to be kind of a, uh, a handbook about what a bishop should be, what a priest should be. And the title of the book 
uh, is comes from what Gregory called it, but he didn't call it in in the work itself. He didn't actually assign this as a title. Rather, uh, the title is taken from his own description of this work in a letter he wrote to Leander of Seville, uh, who was the brother of the great uh, Isidore of Seville, whom some want uh, named patron of the internet. Uh, he knew Leander from his time in Constantinople when he was uh, there uh, for really quite a while. And uh, so we don't have this as his own title, except uh, uh, insofar, indirectly, as it comes from a description, his own description of the work. But remember, this is a highly idealistic work, and as such, it was also hugely influential. I mean, isn't it true that, that, that only really the idealistic things are the things that become most influential, right? You know, sometimes you have to shoot the moon. If you just, you know, kind of say, well, you know, we're not going to raise, you know, very high expectations for you. I mean, what kind of, you know, influence will a work like that have? In any event, uh, we know that it was hugely influential on on centuries, generation after generation after generation of Catholic bishops. Um, the Archbishop of Reims, Hinkmar, said in the ninth century that a copy was given to every bishop at his consecration. And Pope Gregory, uh, of course, who, uh, who sent uh, Augustine of Canterbury up to England to convert all those heathens, Saxons, and so forth up in, in the British Isles, um, sent him along, and uh, Augustine, Augustine took with him a copy of Gregory's book. And so Gregory, through this book and through the work of the missionaries there, influenced a whole, uh, a whole new group of bishops in a whole new cultural context. And uh, this even went down so far as to the great ruler, remember Rector, his ruler, King Alfred the Great, uh, translated this work into Old English and because he wanted it to be used as a text, an educational text, also to help the English language, not just also how people rule and how they would treat those um, under their care. Now, Gregory had obviously been thinking about this uh, for a long time. He had already been contemplating the work when he was still in Constantinople and while he was working on his great um, book, his great work on Job, the Magna Moralia, uh, he even mentions it uh, that he you know hopes to bring this thing to conclusion for so forth and um, and there's also a foundation in Christian literature for this sort of work uh, about the person and the duties of someone to whom governance is entrusted pastoral care is given uh, already in the Old Testament you know we have the prophet Ezekiel uh, being very, very clear about you know what a good shepherd is and what a bad shepherd is. Christ himself describes the, the shepherd among his sheep, and he fulminates against those who would lead anyone astray, especially little ones, and um, what kind of sacrifice the shepherd should have to be able to you know go out into the wilderness in search of the one that's lost, for example. St. Paul here and there speaks of the type of person the bishop ought to be in the church. And um, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, in his second oration, uh, spoke about his own reluctance to take up such a heavy burden, and he talks about the duties and offices of the bishop. As a matter of fact, I think we can you know, pick up from this work by Gregory the Great um, how 
truly you know terrifying it was for him to be bishop of rome i mean he if he sets this up as an ideal he must have himself been you know very very humbled by his by his position um Gregory the Great, as a matter of fact, uh, mentions Nazianzen's work, and of course there's a there's a bit of a resonance there because Gregory of Nazianzus, you know, bore his burdens as bishop uh, with great great difficulty. Uh, John Chrysostom is another one in the East who talks about the the priesthood and the duties of the priest and his work, which we call in Latin De Sacerdotio. Uh, it's probably, Gregory the Great probably didn't use John Chrysostom's work in, in any way in the preparation of this thing, but that just goes uh, to show that there is uh, already a body of literature out there. This is already a topos by the time Gregory the Great comes along in the late 6th and early 7th century. So now this work is primarily you know, about the pastor, the ruler, the rector, but it's really about the office of a bishop. It's about he, about the one to whom governance is entrusted. And at this point in the excerpt we're going to hear, Gregory has explained that the work of the bishops is not for people who are incompetent, and it's not for hypocrites, because the men who are chosen need to be able to study and grasp hard things, and they also need to be consistent in their lives, and they need to match their match their lives to what they then go on to teach after study. And they have to be in good health, because it's really hard in the body, and they shouldn't be ambitious, and they shouldn't shy away from responsibility, and in the second part, he moves on to say that the pastor needs to avoid exalting himself, you know, putting on airs, in other words, and he should be pure in thought, and he should be a man of action. He should lead by example. In other words, he can't be timid. And then he gets into when he should speak and when he should keep his mouth shut. And that's where we pick up uh, today's excerpt from the Office of Readings which is from uh, a fabulous work, the Regula, Regula, Liber Regulae Pastoralis of Pope Leo the Great. Let's listen to the great man's words. A ruler should be silent when discretion requires and speak when words are of service. Otherwise, he may say what he should not, or be silent when he should speak. Indiscreet speech may lead men into error, and an imprudent silence may leave in error those who could have been taught. Pastors who lack foresight hesitate to say openly what is right, because they fear losing the favor of men. As the voice of truth tells us, such leaders are not zealous pastors who protect the flocks. Rather, they are like mercenaries who flee by taking refuge in silence when the wolf appears. The Lord reproaches them through the prophet. They are dumb dogs that cannot bark. On another occasion he complains, You did not advance against the foe, or set up a wall in front of the house of Israel, so that you might stand fast in battle on the day of the Lord. To advance against the foe involves a bold resistance to the powers of this world in defense of the flock. 
to stand fast in battle on the day of the Lord means to oppose the wicked enemy out of love for what is right. When a pastor has been afraid to assert what is right, has he not turned his back and fled by remaining silent? Whereas, if he intervenes on behalf of the flock, he sets up a wall against the enemy in front of the house of Israel. Therefore, the Lord again says to his unfaithful people, Your prophets saw false and foolish visions, and did not point out your wickedness, that you might repent of your sins. The name of prophet is sometimes given in the sacred writings to teachers who both declare the present to be fleeting and reveal what is to come. The word of God accuses them of seeing false visions because they are afraid to reproach men for their faults and thereby lull the evildoer with an empty promise of safety. Because they fear reproach, they keep silent and fail to point out the sinner's wrongdoing. The word of reproach is a key that unlocks a door because reproach reveals a fault of which the evildoer is himself often unaware. That is why Paul says of the bishop, he must be able to encourage men in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For the same reason God tells us through Malachi, the lips of the priest are to preserve knowledge, and men shall look to him for the law, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Finally, that is also the reason why the Lord warns us through Isaiah, Cry out, and be not still. Raise your voice in a trumpet call. Anyone ordained a priest undertakes the task of preaching, so that with a loud cry he may go on ahead of the terrible judge who follows. If, then, a priest does not know how to preach, what kind of cry can such a dumb herald utter? It was to bring this home that the Holy Spirit descended in the form of tongues on the first pastors, for he causes those whom he has filled to speak out spontaneously. E regola pastorali sancti Gregori Mani Pape. Sit rector discretus in silencio utilis in verbo, ne aut tacenda proferat aut proferenda reticescat. Nam sicut in cauta locutio in errorem pertrahit, ita in discretum silentium hos qui erudiri poterant in errore de relinquit. Sepenamque rectores improvidi, humana mamitre gratiam formidantes, loqui libere recta permitescunt. Et juxta veritatis vocem, nequaquam iam gregis custodie pastorum studio, sed mercenariorum vice diserviunt, quia veniente lupo fugiunt, dum se sub silencio abscondunt. 
hinc namque eos per profetam dominus increpat dicens, canes muti non valentes latrare. Hinc rursum queritur dicens, non ascendistis ex adverso, nec opposuistis murum pro domo Israel, ut staretis imprelio in die domini. Ex adverso quipe ascendere est pro defensione gregis voce libra huius mundi potestatibus contraire. Et in die domini in prelio stare est pravis de certantibus ex justitiae amore resistere. Pastorien imbrecta timuisse dicere, quid est aliud quam tacendo terga prebuisse? Qui nimirum si progreges e obicit murum pro domo Israel hostibus opponit, hinc rursum deliquenti popolo digitur, profete tui viderunt tibi falsa et stulta, nec apriebant iniquitatem tua, mute ad penitentiam provocarent. Profete quipe in sacro eloquio non numquam doctores vocantur, qui dum fugitiva esse presentia indicant, Que sunt ventura manifestant. Quos divinus sermo falsa videre redarguit, quia dum corripere culpas metunt, in cassum delinquentibus promissa securitate blandiuntur, qui iniquitatem pecantium nequaquam aperiunt, quia ab increpationis voce conticescunt. Clavis quipe apertionis est sermo correptionis, quia increpando culpam detegit, quam sepe nescit ipse etiam qui perpetravit. Hinc Paulus ait, ut potens sit exhortari in doctrina sana, et eos qui contradicunt arguere. Hinc per malachiam digitur, labia sacerdotis custodient scientiam, et legem requirent ex ore eus, quia angelus domini exercitum est. Hinc per Isaiam dominus admonet dicens, clama necesses, quasi tuba exalta vocem tuam. Preconis quipe opicium suscipit quisquis ad sacerdotium accedit, ut ante adventum judicis qui terbiliter sequitur, ipse cilicet clamando gradiatur. Sacerdos ergo, si predicationis est necius, quam clamoris vocem daturus est precon mutus. Hinc est enim quod super pastoris primos in linguarum specie spiritus sanctus insedit, quia nimirum quos repleverit de se protinus loquentes facit. That was an excerpt from the Liber Regulae Pastoralis by St. Pope Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory I, who died in 604. And you can hear in this his zeal for the flock, especially in relation to error. He, he doesn't want the flock to be in error, because being in error threatened their immortal souls. And it was the role of the bishop to bring people 
uh, into harmony with the truth and also to function therefore as a teacher and as a physician to treat the diseases that would enter into the, the people uh, from the, in the point of view of error. For example, he has to apply remedies, remedies for errors, and also then to shape them in a proper way. And this, of course, has to be uh, in harmony with the one who is entrusting the work to the bishop, who is Jesus Christ himself. He has to be in conformity with, with the love of God, the love of God uh, and love of neighbor. And this is key to what Gregory is saying in this thing, when to speak and when to be silent, the kind of word to speak, not to speak just with human respect, not to speak in fear of, of you know, to, to soften things because you're afraid of, of what people might think. Uh, on the other hand, not to stay silent when you have to speak, and not to say the kinds of things that are unconsidered or or basically the wrong thing, either error or the thing that will do harm. So you have to be you have to really weigh your words very carefully at the same time as you have to be a lion in speaking. Because you sometimes as bishop or as priest in, in this case, anyone who is ruler or pastor, and I think we could also apply this to the secular realm too, couldn't we? or maybe even as the father of a family, or, or anyone who is rector, sometimes you are what stand between those entrusted uh, to your charge and disaster. Not only material disaster, but also spiritual disaster. Now, Gregory, of course, teaches uh, this out of love, love for uh, those who would follow him, in his flock and those others who would have to be bishops and, and priests among the people of God. And he therefore sets up this great example, a tremendous example of uh, almost an unattainable idealistic picture of the pastor or ruler in the church who has to conform himself to a supernatural standard, uh, of course always by the grace of God but especially by willingness to make sacrifices. In a way, um, I'm reminded of that little bit, kind of a funny bit, uh, about the perfect priest. Maybe you've heard it. Um, the perfect priest. It comes from. Uh, well, here let's let's hear a little bit of it. I posted it in the in the in the blog uh, some time ago, and I I can dig it up here. Let me let me click. Let me let me click a little bit for a while. And here it comes. The Perfect Priest. The results of a computerized survey indicate the perfect priest preaches exactly 15 minutes. He condemns sins but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also a janitor. He makes $50 a week, wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a good car, and gives about $50 a week to the poor. He is 28 years old and has preached for 30 years. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all of his time with senior citizens. The perfect priest smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 calls daily on parish families, shut-ins, and the hospitalized, and is always in his office when needed. 
If your priest does not measure up, simply send this letter to six other churches that are tired of their priest too. Then bundle up your priest and send him to the church on the top of the list. In one week, you will receive 1,643 priests, and one of them will be perfect. Have faith in this procedure. One parish broke the chain and got its old priest back in less than three weeks. Now that's obviously a lighter way of saying that we should always retain our high expectations for our priests, but we should always remember that they are also only human. We have to give support to our priests, of course, and our bishops, letting them know that they are doing a good job when they're doing a good job, and、uh, when we need to make our needs known or our concerns known, we have to be very diplomatic and careful about it.、Uh, this has a very practical side. Uh, say, for example, you want something done or want something changed in your parish, whether it's a new program or getting rid of a liturgical abuse, or it might be it might be something like getting even a celebration of the older form of mass. Well, if you go up to your priest or your bishop and immediately start nagging or whining at him or otherwise getting in his face, you know, just scratching his eyeball while you make a petition, I can pretty much assure you that he. Won't be likely to give、uh, your no doubt perfect ideas、uh, the kindest of hearings. So be a little careful and be smart when approaching priests and bishops. Now remember that they also are under terrible attacks from the enemy of the soul. The enemy of the soul, the devil, hates bishops and hates priests more than. Anyone else in the church, his malice for them outstrips the malice he has for virtually anybody else. I mean, as a group of people, it's because the priest and the bishop shape the people of God around themselves and around the altar. It's the priest who confects the Eucharist at Mass. He has Christ's power to forgive your sins. Think about those. Moments of need. Think about the moment of your death, and the fact that the priest can forgive your sins. He can give you the apostolic benediction, which remits even all the temporal punishment due to sin in that moment of your death. Think about what the priest can do in those critical moments. So we have to support our priests positively. We have to support vocations to the priesthood. We also have to remember that these men are all very human. They are often under both temporal and spiritual attack, and we also have to be kind of smart when approaching them and making our petitions and our desires known to them. It's time once again for some of your voicemail feedback. As you know, I have、uh, phone numbers available in the United States and in the UK for you to call in, leave me a voicemail message. It comes into my Skype address, WDTTRS, Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra, and I get it on my computer and I listen to all of it. So let's hear one of them today. Holy 
Hi, Father Zeldorf. This is Joe Garbarino, uh, J.H. Garbo on your blog. A bunch of us who've been driving 40, 50, 80 miles to St. Augustine in South St. Paul to have the Tridenting Mass are having our first meeting on September 14th. So one of the interesting dynamics, as much as you've covered the Motu Proprio, is the dynamics of the churches that had it are now going to have large groups of people who are going to leave those churches and go off geographically, uh, I guess like the Apostles did in the early days, to try to spread the Mass out. Uh, I'm prayerful that it won't have an impact on the existing Tridentine Masses, that they won't see their numbers drop in a way to be discouraged. That probably won't happen. Thank you, Father. Thank you for keeping your podcast. You make uh, buying an iPod worth the money. Uh, keep your good work up. God bless you. Bye. You know, I think you have a really good point. Uh, for a long time, people have had to drive very long distances, uh, a great economic sacrifice and sacrifice of time. Think about the problems for young families with children having to get up at oh dark hundred in order to drive such a long distance and get everybody together, and you know all the difficulties involved in that, just because you know. They had only one opportunity or one place at maybe an inconvenient time to be able to go to the older form of mass. That uh, kind of that spiritual stinginess caused a lot of people really to suffer terribly. And I think about the problems uh, that that could have been avoided all along if there had been a wider and generous application of of the church's legislation as John Paul II asked for in his own motu proprio Ecclesia Dei ad flicta. You know, think about it. You know, if, if Ecclesia Dei had been implemented the way John Paul II asked for it, would we have gotten Summorum Pontificum from Pope Benedict? Probably not. We might not have seen this de-restriction. So in a way, those who thought to circumvent the older form of Mass wound up provoking the very de-restriction that, that we have now. They brought on themselves the thing that they wanted to avoid the most. But we can, you know, walk it back a little farther. You know, I think we probably wouldn't have gotten Ecclesia Dei uh, from the pen of John Paul II, and probably there wouldn't have been that whole uh, movement around Archbishop Lefebvre. Had the Novus Ordo been implemented in the way that it was supposed to be, according to the book, without all the crazy experimentation and all that kind of stuff that started right after the Council. But then again, you know, think about it. We can take it back one more step. I don't think we probably would have even gotten the Novus Ordo in the form that it was had those very few things that were mandated by the Council in its document, its constitution on liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, had those very few, few things been stuck to in the reform mandated by the Council Fathers. Instead, the group that was entrusted with that reform went way beyond what the Council actually asked for in Sacrosanctum Concilium. So, I think we, if we take each step backwards, we see that there was something, you know, kind of went, 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 went wrong which led to another step, and led to another correction, and then another correction, and another course correction, winding up now in this de-restriction of the older form. 
But this has to be part of Pope Benedict's plan to reintroduce that, you know, what some people call that hermeneutic of continuity back into the church after all the rupture and the breaking and the pulling apart and all the crazy stuff that's gone back, you know, gone on for the last few decades, which have caused so much, uh, you know, kind of confusion. Uh, about you know who we are as Catholics and who we are as a church. Now, very uh, interesting. Uh, there was a, recently an interview uh, by John Allen of the National Catholic Reporter, a friend of mine from Rome, very fine uh, journalist in many respects. Uh, he interviewed uh, at length Cardinal George of Chicago, and they spent a lot of time talking about Catholic identity. And at the very beginning of that, uh, uh, Allen reminds us that at the very beginning of of at, during a talk that Cardinal Bertone gave in Milan, uh, he said that the, at the very heart of Pope Benedict's pontificate is the the desire to reinvigorate or you know, rediscover, to shore up Catholic identity. That's at the very heart of his pontificate. And I think that Summorum Pontificum, to de-restrict the older form of Mass, is a major part in this. It's part of a large martial plan for the church, you know, to rebuild ourselves after the devastation. You know, that's kind of dramatic, I suppose. Not a lot of people want to, you know, actually recognize that things haven't gone perfectly, but I think we have to knock off all, you know, the the happy talk about everything. In some sectors of the church, we need a lot of healing. We need a lot of rebuilding. And the de-restriction of the older form of mass is is a part of this because it will help us uh, with our Catholic identity. And so all the people involved in the older form of Mass have to exercise great patience. They have to be very kind. They have to be very, you know, careful and diplomatic as they make their petitions and requests known to their pastors. Just on a human level, that have, they have to be very careful. Uh, they've sacrificed for a long time, and maybe in their zeal and their enthusiasm, you know, they're going to be tempted to go just a little too far on a human level in what they ask for. You know, too much, too brief a time with someone who might not understand, you know, where they're coming from. So I think we have to be very careful, very kind, very, very patient. And also, uh, we have to talk about uh, the roadblocks that are set up because you know we all know that there are a lot of people out there who are very afraid of the older form of mass and they are in positions of power and they are going to make it you know difficult in some places to allow uh, celebrations of the older form of mass to to take place and you know they'll leave us sometimes they're going to leave us scratching our heads you know what are they so afraid of why are they doing this why can't we just have what the provisions of Sumorum Pontificum say you know why are they placing all these roadblocks and obstacles and hoops to jump through what are they so afraid of you know is are they afraid that you know that people are actually going to go to this mass and be spiritually fulfilled well, certainly not. I mean, they're pastors of souls. They want people to you know, spiritually benefit. So what are they afraid of? Are they afraid that it's going to make the way that Mass is being celebrated in other places look bad? I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is... I'm against it, and even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. Well, maybe. 
maybe that's it. Maybe they have bad childhood memories. I don't know. Maybe they're just, you know, maybe they're just afraid that it's going to create more work. I don't know. I don't know. There are a lot of human factors involved in this. And so we have to be very patient and very kind with everyone involved. And you can keep me informed about what's going on in your neck of the woods, just as that wonderful voicemail did. You know, he's talking about people now going off and, you know, back. They won't maybe have to drive so far to go to Mass if they can get something going in their in their own neck of the woods. It's a wonderful thing. I hope they will keep me informed. Uh, you can use the blog to do that, wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? You folks are incredible. My statistics are going through the roof, and I am so grateful for all of your your help. Uh, also using the donation button and sending me feedback and sending me voicemail, sending me links and keeping me in the loop about everything going on. I very, very much appreciate all of your comments. Uh, I especially like the voicemail feedback. That's kind of fun. It's fun to listen to. I might not be able to respond to everybody you know, publicly, either on the blog or in these podcasts, but I do read everything and listen to everything. Uh, it's really helpful uh, when you keep them nice and short, you know, about one topic at a time. If you, you know, want me to integrate them into the podcast, that would really help. But right now, I'm going to wrap this podcast up so it doesn't get too long, and I thank you so much. Kindly say a prayer for me as I will for you. This is Father Z signing off until next time.